0: Hey this is Pastor Ellie, one of the lead pastors of Bold Church. I wanted to say thank you for joining us today. If you want to stay up to date on everything that's happening at Bold Church, want a live stream of service or find out when our next gathering is, head over to bold.church. Enjoy the message. Who has been loving our first Bold Conference? Come on. Uh, you are in for a treat because it's, it's not, his name is not Pastor Chris. It's Reverend Chris Palmer. Not only, let me give you his bio. This will help some of you, especially you single ladies. Um, He is a professor at Moody Bible Institute. Amazing. But he's got more. He's a fourth year, going on 10, PhD student. And he's the academic dean at Bayless University. And in my opinion, the most eligible bachelor in America. Come on. And if there are any biblical women that want to pull a Ruth, his email might be chris at Just, just put it out there. You might want to sleep at his feet? I don't know. But can we give him a bold welcome? Come on. Reverend Chris Palmer!
1: Oh
2: my God, what did, I, what did I just step into here, huh? Tell hey, you what, thank God! What what an introduction! I, so if I get emails, I'm just gonna forward them back to Pastor Ali and have him sort them. I just forward them to, to Pastor Yasmin and have her sort them out, right? No, it's so good to be with you, and uh, I've been tremendously blessed. I got in, I got in last night, and um, just was really excited about this. Got a chance to hear Pastor Russell. Did you enjoy the yeah. word? let just really, really got me going. I'm a dyed-in-the-wool Pentecostal, so that type of preaching just gets me going. And uh, I said he had enough. He, he's at a 10. I'm usually around a 2 when it comes to energy. And uh, so he had enough energy for the whole conference as far as I'm concerned. And then Pastor Ali today. Wasn't that phenomenal? Was fantastic. I was, I was sort of hoping that the sledgehammer and the rock would be up here. I, I was going to try to take a crack at it, you know. And then we have Nathan Finocchio tonight, so I'm kind of at a loss. I thought, okay, last night we had revival fire and apostolic preaching, right? Today we had pastoral instruction and in preaching to the mind, and tonight you're going to laugh so hard that your side's going to hurt. Where does that leave me? So I said, why don't we just nerd out this afternoon? Is that okay? And really, I mean, I'm the afternoon session at 2 o'clock, so I am, I am forced to face the food comas that potentially are in the room right now. I heard um, Jose get in his Chipotle order before we came, and I said, well, it's not devils that I have to compete with, it's, it's, it's stomachs and digestion I have to compete with, and that's okay because God's word is like a hammer, and it destroys a rock, and it can destroy your digestion and get past all that. Are you ready to get into scripture today? Okay, good. I, I like the energy I'm sensing. I like it. I like it. Um, Before we do, I'm going to be that guy, I'm going to be the guy that talks about my books, I'm just not going to do it for a half hour, is that okay? I did bring two books with me. Um, Back in 2017, I was finishing up my exegetical stuff in Greek at Moody, where I teach now, and I started putting stuff on my Instagram called Greek for the Week. I know it's corny, I know, but a publisher liked it and wanted me to write a Greek for the Week series, asked me to do one on the seven churches of Revelation, so that's this book here and then asked me to write. They liked Rick Renner's Sparkling Gems, but they felt it needed to be updated by a young, good-looking, eligible bachelor. I said, well, that's not me. They said, well, we'll we do it anyway. I said, sure. And uh, so I wrote Greek word study, 90 Greek words that, um, yeah, it's just a lot of fun. There's a lot of cool illustrations. So they're in the back. They're available if you're interested. There's better books. I understand that. There are probably won't be your favorite book but if you are interested I recommend you pick it up cuz I know the author and I think he's a pretty good guy <laughs> um turn to a neighbor and tell them this real quick say this afternoon you're going to learn something brand new brand, brand new, brand new brand from, scripture. from scripture all right that's the last time I'll make you do that this service <laughs> Let's read Acts chapter 3. Now, this is a very interesting text. And let's start here in verse number 8. Peter and John are walking into the temple. And what we witness in Acts is the first healing and miracle that takes place after the Spirit falls on Pentecost. So I'm picking up right where... Russell and Pastor Ali left off. In verse number eight, Peter said, I'm in six. Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but I do have, I give to you, the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk, and he took him by the hand, and raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood, and he began to walk. And, and he entered the temple with them, and walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And this is where I want to focus and pay particularly close attention. It says here, And they were filled with wonder and amazement. What had happened to him? Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for the bold conference. I thank you for the Ruiz and just their obedience to have this, to bring in Emmy and the worship team and to bring in Russell and Nathan and myself and, and to contribute our, our surplus, God, what we have to this conference. I pray the blessing, your blessing be upon the going forth of your word. Open the hearts and the ears of the hearers, God, that they would receive this and that it would change their hearts, and that, Father, it would cause them to bear fruit even 10 years from now. May, Father, it penetrate their heart. I can't, there's nothing I can say, Father, to convince or to convict or to bring transformation, but I rely completely upon you, Holy Spirit. I just pray that you would break every bondage, that, Father, every depression would go, and that, Father, your name would be lifted up today, and that you would bring joy unspeakable, full of glory. And Father, we thank you for what you're doing in advance. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. This is a very interesting scripture, not just because of what it says, but because of where it is at in the text. Now, I've spent the last five years of my life becoming a storyteller. And what I mean by that is, I look at scripture like it's a story. And my PhD advisor said that if you're gonna want to work with him, that what you have to do is you have to approach the text like it is a story. So basically, I've spent forty thousand dollars learning how to be a good storyteller and when I have kids I'm gonna say you better like this story because I spent a whole lot of money to learn how to read it to you and what you do in a story is not just pay attention to the words itself but you also pay attention to the way that the story has been arranged I'll give you an example one of the best examples of the importance of arrangement in a story is a joke do you tell the punchline at the beginning no you don't when do you tell the punchline At the end, so what is the first 90% of the joke? It's the setup, right? And if you are a really good joke teller, you know how to set it up. And then you know how to land the punchline. A really bad joke teller, like my brother, he's the worst, he stinks. I tell him, Mike, you have no setup, okay? Like, you rush through that first 90%. Then you get to the last 10% and you belt it out like you have something wrong with you and you don't land it. And so you don't see it yet. But this verse here is a punchline. It's a punchline because of where it is placed. And before I show that to you, I'm going to make mention of the word here where it says they were in amazement. Now, this is probably a word that's going to sound interesting to you. It's the Greek word, ecstasis. It sounds like ecstasy, right? Some of you in your BC days know what that's about. (laughs) Some of you in here might still know what that's about. But... It means what it says, and it's like a rapture of the mind. The idea of amazement, and this is what we're going to talk about today. This is the angle I'm going to approach at. It's a rapture of the mind. Your mind is taken from point A to point B. It goes from one place to the next. And when that happens to your mind, something interesting takes place, and you have this attitude like, how did you do that? Reveal to me your trick. Now, I'm gonna share a story about my old dating life, which is really not my old dating life because that still carries on to existence to this day. But my old ways. Now, I'm an Italian and a dysfunctional Italian. And usually when I say I'm an Italian, if Italians are in the room, I don't have to preface it with dysfunctional because all Italians know that Italians are all dysfunctional. (laughs) But for those of you that are not Italians, you know we're all dysfunctional. And so we're also romantic. And I remember one day in 2010, I had an office. I was in ministry and just getting started teaching and preaching, doing all this stuff that I hope I'm pretty decent at today. I don't know. Some would be like, yeah, never again. Don't ever bring it back. And there was a bank, and I decided to take my honorarium one day, my honorarium in one day, all $67 of it. (laughs) That's what happens when you (laughs) preach. That's what happens when you preach for the Assemblies of God. I'm sorry. I'm joking. (laughs) I'm just joking. And I go into the bank, and sitting there, you know that one old song on the radio? This magic moment. I I swear I heard it. As soon as I locked eyes onto the bank teller, it started to play from the clouds of heaven. (laughs) If you've ever seen the movie The Godfather, have you seen the movie The Godfather? Michael is walking through the mountains of Sicily. He's a gangster, he's as hard-hearted as it can be, and and he sees Apollonia, and all of a sudden, everything changes in his life, and the two Sicilians say that he was struck by the thunderbolt. I was struck by the thunderbolt. I got nervous, my hands started to shake, and and I didn't want her to be my teller because I was a preacher and I didn't want her to see how much money I had (laughs) in my bank account. You get that? And I didn't want her to see. I'm bringing the a check for $67.14. <laughs> but I knew that I had to get to know her. And so I'd come in and come out and come in and come out. And then one day, I, I don't know how it happened. I can't remember. But I, I had a chance to sit and talk with her. And this, this relationship started to develop. And, and she actually talked to me, man. You Dumb and Dumber fans will get that. Laser beam sucked me right in. <laughs> <laughs> so I just said, Hey, your name is Lauren. Her name is probably still Lauren. <laughs> I said, Lauren, what's your number? You, you do have a phone, right? I, I thought maybe I can. And she says, No. You got to do better than that. <sighs> but you know something? I liked her tenacity. (laughs) I have mommy issues. I like rejection. (laughs) I said, you're talking to the right guy. So I walked out, nursing my mommy issues. And I thought, she's right. I have to do better. What am I going to do? Now, I was keeping notes. Guys, pay attention. You got to keep notes in your head. You got to, gotta keep them up here. And she was drinking some latte that looked like it probably cost 60 bucks. Like, I couldn't even afford it with my honorarium, right? <laughs> and I had found out it was an Earl Grey latte from Big Bigby Coffee. I don't know if you guys have Bigby here. Best that you don't, okay? It's not that great, but it's a Michigan thing where I was at at the time. So I thought, this is what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna get her a Bigby's Earl Grey latte Operation Earl Grey Latte has commenced. <laughs> now, I called Bigby and found out that, Ali, they don't deliver. And I asked them, if I was somebody important and special, would you deliver? No. Do your customers know that you don't deliver? No. Okay, challenge accepted. Now, I have to figure out, how do I get them to deliver? So what I did was I got out my old Oceans 11 DVDs and began to study them (laughs) because I'm plotting and I'm scheming, right? And then I realized something. I don't have to deliver it. I just have to make it appear like I've delivered it, right? Okay, guys. (laughs) Obviously, you guys know this went up in smoke. Otherwise, she'd be in the front row. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this went up in smoke believe you me it went up in smoke <laughs> seems to be my pattern in life <laughs> so I had to do recon so I have the plan and I have to do recon I went to the Bigby Coffee and I looked around and then it hit me I knew I was going to pull this off they sold t-shirts and hats Jose got it, he's another Latin guy, Latin lover. So my buddy's sister owed me a favor, so I called her up, I said, Carly, that favor that I need for knocking that guy off for you, I got it, I, I know exactly what I need to do. I said, what? I said, meet me at Bigby Coffee on Friday at 7.30 in the morning. She said, okay. In the meantime, I called Lauren's boss at the bank and requested to set up a checking appointment. With her at 8 a.m. on Friday morning to make sure she was going to be there. And then we got to the Big B coffee. Carly walked in, got the coffee, made sure it was piping hot, like hot, like 400 degrees hot, to the point it was going to disintegrate. Because if you deliver a cold coffee, you're out, it's not good. Right? And then I said, put the shirt on, put the hat on, walk into the Big B, and make sure she's with a lot of people, make sure she's around, make a big scene of it. And then when you walk in there, say, are you Lauren? She's going to say, yes, she's Lauren, and just hand her the coffee, drop the gun, and walk away. (laughs) (laughs) And she did it. She walked out. I said, what happened? I dropped the gun. I walked away. She got the coffee. And the note simply said, Lauren, happy Friday, Chris." Went to my desk, sat at my office, put my phone out. (laughs) And waited for that number. And about a half hour later, an unknown 248 number popped up. And all it said was, how the blank did you do that? And I said to her, well... I'd be happy to tell you, but I only reveal my secrets on Friday nights. And we had dinner one time. (laughs) End of story. (laughs) Because she saw my bank account. I'm telling you this sad, bereaved, deranged story with purpose so that you don't forget Lauren's question of how you did that illustrates something important about our discipleship and the way that we walk after Jesus and walk after the Holy Spirit I want to show you in just a second that that wonder, that ecstasis, that presence of mind where you are constantly ruminating and thinking about the work of the Spirit is a staple of proper discipleship, of following after the third person of the Trinity whom we call the Holy Spirit. That there's an element that Luke is trying to tell us right here in the beginning As the narrative sets out, that wonderment is going to play an extremely important part of the Holy Spirit's ministry in the book of Acts. The book of Acts is a genre called narrative, but I would argue that it's a travel narrative. It's an epic journey. And the way that the early Christians thought about the book of Acts is they would have seen that this was illustrative of the Christian life. If you've ever read John Bunyan's Pilgrim Progress, you understand that he starts off in a city and he's making his way to the new Jerusalem and, and in between you have all kinds of opposition and that's what the book of Acts is like and, and at the very beginning of the journey when Peter and James and John and the apostles are getting ready to set out the Holy Spirit has equipped them and right then and there the idea of wonder makes its way into the story right before they set out to take the gospel all across the world and begin partnering with the Holy Spirit. And and I would argue and say that at the beginning of your Christian life, you're filled with wonderment. And And the goal is that as you walk with the Spirit, not to lose that. Not to lose the, how did you do that, God? Not to lose this disposition because wondering... Ruminating over the ways of God and how the spirit works is is crucial to your position as a disciple. And it can be so easy in a society that has been affected so deeply by rationalism, empiricism, modernism, and now deconstruction to lose that wonderment and be given completely and totally over to skepticism and cynicism to where you're no longer asking, oh, Jesus, to you're no longer asking God, how did you do that from a pure heart? You're asking God, did you actually do that from a skeptic's heart? And there's a huge difference between asking the same question from wonderment and asking the same question out of unbelief. So I wanna challenge you today to be a wonderer. Now, if I could have Slide on the board, number one or number two, I think it is. Write this down if you're taking notes. Wonderment wonderment is a characteristic of faith and discipleship. If you look up on the screen, I'm not going to... You can write those down or you can take a picture of it with your cell phone. You'll see that as the Old Testament sets out, right even before creation in Job chapter 38, verse 17, if you read that verse, you'll notice that the angels express at creation this sense of wonder and awe. How did you do that, God? How did you do that? And so right there in the story, in Job, this wonderment shows up. And then one of the most important things in all of Scripture takes place, a a, a story that is going to be told over and over again in the early Christian days, a story that is repeated so often in the Gospels that it's striking, and a story that that, that hinges the book of Revelation, that, that walks parallel with the book of Revelation, and that is the Exodus. This, this doesn't leave our sight. And, and when the Exodus takes place, Miriam has this song of wonderment about the goodness and the grace of God, about how God delivered them out of Egypt. And you see in 1 Chronicles 16, people wonder at God's amazing deeds, and it makes its way into the Psalms as a as a staple or a touchstone of worship is that we proclaim the wondrous deeds of God. And then you find it here in Isaiah's prophecy about wondering with a heart after the works of God. But that's not it. So I'll say that in the Old Testament, when the first person of the Trinity who is seemed to be highlighted, he, when he works, Yahweh, people are amazed. So you connect Yahweh to the people of God to amazement, and you see that they are three things that work in tandem together. Next slide. But you'll see that something happens in Luke. Now, Luke is a storyteller, and he's trying to tell the story of Jesus. And he's trying to tell the story in relation to Jesus and Yahweh. How can he subtly hint to you that Jesus is the Godhead, or is part of the Godhead. The God of the Old Testament is not different from the God of the New Testament. They're one and the same. And, And as you read scripture, what you'll see is that the Trinity begins to take shape. You'll see it start to develop, and this is one of the ways it develops in the New Testament is that as Luke is telling the story of Jesus, he makes it very clear that the people wonder after Jesus. In the same way that the people of Israel wondered after Yahweh. And you'll see this in Luke chapter 168. Announcement of Christ and Elizabeth and Zechariah and the announcements of John the Baptist. It starts the narrative with their wondering and surprise. It's the same idea in Luke chapter 525. Amazement came on the people after the paralyzed man was healed. Luke 7, 16. Fear seized the people when when Jesus raised the boy at Nain. This, This is that same wonderment. Luke 9, 43, astonishment came on the people when Jesus cast a demon from the boy. I think there are other slides. Luke 13, 13, notice they're all in Luke because this is how Luke is telling the story. Glory was given to God when the disabled woman was healed. Luke 7, the leper came back and gave glory to God. Same idea, that wonderment. 1843, 19, verse 37. You'll see that that in Jesus' ministry, wonder was essential for a disciple. And then Luke starts the story of the Holy Spirit. And when the story of the Holy Spirit takes place, what is the very, one of the very first things that shows when the Spirit of God works amongst the people? Wonderment. With that setup, Luke is showing to you this that with the coming of the Spirit, when the Spirit works, He is not only just bringing the presence of the Spirit, it is the presence of the Father, the presence of the Son, and the presence of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, working through the book of Acts. And that when God works amongst the people through the Spirit, it is the presence of the Godhead. The God in the Old Testament, the Jesus of the Gospels, and now the Spirit, God with us amongst his people. And that, that is the presence of God that is here with us today. And we have a decision to make. Will we wonder at that? Or will we allow our hearts to be full of skepticism and deconstruction and the wrong questions as God is here in our midst? Now, imagine the tragedy we'll see in just a second when we get to Luke chapter 19, and I'm going to ask you to make your way there. And as you do that, I want to talk about our heart for a second. The ability to be amazed... I was thinking about how to describe this word and and I'm going to use this term here and that is surprisability. If you want to take this down feel free but make sure you give me the footnote here that I invented this word. Surprisability is the potential or the proclivity that you have in your heart for the Holy Spirit to Pull one over on you. To do something in your life that you least expect. It is the opposite of having a heart that is resentful, a heart that is bitter, and a heart that is doubtful. You know, you can always tell a person's disposition to the Spirit and to the things of God if you get to talking to them for just a little bit of time. Find this particularly when you get to talking to pastors who are in ministry, and I'm not condemning them, but but they need, to be, they need to be loved and they need for us to come alongside them and, and help them because ministry is, I'm telling you what, it is. If you haven't been in ministry long, you know what it's like. And serving the Lord can be the same thing. How many have served the Lord longer than a year and have found out that there are many and plenty disappointments in following God? Absolutely. How many have thought that God said something and it seemed like it didn't come to pass. Can I see your hands before? How many believe that God was leading you to do something and it didn't come to pass? How many have been let down by somebody? You, you loved this person, you admired them, you maybe set them on a pedestal, and then that person failed. One thing after the next, after the next. If you aren't protecting your heart, what begins to happen is, you have a disposition to resist the spirit when he truly does want to move in your life. And, and, and when you, you bring that into a congregation and there's three and four people and there's ten people in the congregation, everybody has this in the congregation when you go to worship and it begins to fall flat you're wondering, why isn't there any presence in here? Why isn't there any ability to receive what the pastor's saying? And and the pastor's trying to preach the word and it feels like the word keeps bouncing back at him. What's he dealing with? There's skeptical hearts that are in the crowd and it's not allowing the word to penetrate into their lives because there's disappointment and there's skepticism and there's cynicism and there's rationale and and you're just hanging on by a thread And, and today I wanna pray for you and believe that the disappointment and the skepticism in your heart will turn back into wonderment where you say, God, I don't need all the answers. I don't need any of the answers to know that you are good. And I am here to say that I love you and you still amaze me, Jesus. Can you get to that point? I mean, I've been through. I can tell you story after story after story and it will tell you Story after story, where my heart wanted to give way to this callousness. And you have to fight the fight to keep believing. You hear Journey's song, Don't Stop Believing, now in your mind, right? <laughs> Cue it, my show. I'm joking. That's surprisability. I'll say this. Um, So the one thing about being a a, a Italian and having a dysfunctional Italian-American family is that Italians, at least my family, okay, they don't like surprises. Italian people, they hate them, right? There's a few things Italian people don't like. We don't like the Olive Garden, that's for sure. (laughs) We don't like fettuccine alfredo because it's not Italian, and we don't like meatballs because those aren't Italian either. Not spaghetti and meatballs. Yeah, they're not. Don't don't give me the really stuff. I'm sorry to disappoint you, okay? But but, listen to this. I I, um, my dad is I love him, and I I spent a lot of time preaching teaching in Italy, et cetera, et cetera. I know I'm super cool. I'm better than you now. But anyway. Um. And I was over there in 2014, just teaching and doing stuff over there, and my dad and my uncle, two Italian guys, right? they, they wanted to come visit me. And I said, sure, but let me just tell you, dad, let, let's listen here, okay? First of all, dad, stop calling Italy, Italy.
1: <laughs>
2: you know, like when you get to a certain age, like in your 50s, you stop pronouncing things correct. <laughs> okay? Like, my dad can't even get my name right now, right? And he was calling Italy, Italy. I'm like, dad, stop. Like, there's an A in this, country's name. And if you're going to tell them you're Italian, you can't even get the country right. And I said, and dad, don't fight with them when they tell you that spaghetti and meatballs are not a thing just because your mom used to make them. Your mother was an Italian-American woman, okay? She wasn't from Italy. Her parents were from Italy, and she adapted to the culture. It was anglicized. Don't get into the fight. And you know something? The first night in Verona, there we are, and I'm with my Italian pastor friends, and a fight disrupts at the table that Italian meatballs are actually American, and my dad wasn't having it. (laughs) I'm still not let back into the country to this day. (laughs) Yeah, so we don't like that kind of stuff, right? And we don't like to be surprised. Just tell us. Like, don't pull one over on me, okay? And when I passed, I passed for six and a half years. I used to hate my birthday. I used to fear. In May, in May, I started to have to take Xanax every May because I knew my birthday was covered. I used to have to call the doctor and ask for the Xanax because I'd stay up late at night wondering, how are they going to surprise me this year? I'm joking. I didn't eat the Xanax. Melatonin, but not Xanax. And, and finally I pulled my dad aside I said I can't take this anymore this is what I need you to do I need you to find out everything that's going to take place in the leadership of the church and you need to tell me quietly everything that they're going to do and, and my dad was like I can't do that no I can't do that like, you have to do that like there was like this underground faction going on between the two it was, like a revolution was taking place between the two <laughs> listen dad you must tell me what they're gonna do I can't do that I was like I'll tell you what if you don't tell me whatever they do I'm gonna act like I don't like it but if you tell me I'll act like I really like it even more than I like it like when they give me a mug or a porcelain thing of somebody praying I'll act like it's really amazing (laughs) I'm gonna break it to you guys pastors don't like mugs Okay, I said it. I told you I'd do it, Pastor Ali. I'm joking. He never told me. <laughs> and so, so from that point, for like the next five years, my dad would always tell me any surprise that the church had going on. It was great. And so, I, yeah, I, I got away from that. And, and so that's what I would call having a low, a low surprise ability as a Christian. It's just not having it. It's being skeptical of everything that the Spirit is trying to do inside your life. Where's God at right now? Why does he let that happen? Why do you let that leader fall? I don't get it. If if if, if they really were serving Jesus, I mean, they they seem to be serving, and, and it's the same type of skepticism that leads to complete deconstruction it's the same kind of skepticism that leads to the abandonment of your faith. And, and even in the areas of rationale, things that defy answers, you're trying to figure it out and you can't. And so you disband in your faith because it's not compatible with modern thinking. Modern thinking is always trying to find an answer for everything. Let me explain something to you, friend. When you signed up for Christianity, you signed up, if you knew it or not, with being okay for not having answers to everything. I started doing my thesis work and, and actually my, my big ending of my thesis that I'm gonna write, is gonna be a critique on apologists, apologetics and that I'm, they're probably gonna come at me for it, but I'm gonna say that we shouldn't be trying to give answers to everything. The, there needs to be a, a disposition that Christianity realizes that we should be okay with loose ends to certain things. We should be okay with not trying to fabricate answers for things in simplicity without considering the sufferer and what they have been through. I am not going to give you nice, generic answers for why you suffered from something. I'm just going to come alongside you and hold you and remind you that the Spirit is sovereign without fabricating an answer. A Pentecostal's answer to suffering is the Spirit. And then what do you do about horrendous evils and things like that? I mean, we could talk about this in in general, but at the starting point is that Christians have to be okay with being in a place of mystery. And knowing that in the mystery, God is doing something far bigger than what I could see. So you understand the tragedy of this in Luke chapter 19 If you could put it up on the screen. Luke chapter 19. Did you guys find it yet? Let me go there on my iPhone. Let me clear out my text cache real quick. Luke chapter 19. Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. He says here in verse number 41, And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known... On this day, the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear down to the ground and you and your children, and they not leave one stone upon another. What is Jesus saying here? Jesus was telling the city of Jerusalem who rejected him that you were so skeptic. You were so right in your own mind You were so given to your own rationale that you didn't even notice me when I was amongst you. I often wonder when people give up on Jesus because of whatever answer they don't have that they'll have to face the Lord one day and he'll say that I was right in front of you part of your story. I was there, in the story, with you. And you gave yourself over to your own rationale because you trusted in that as Lord. You didn't see what my spirit was doing. When you allow your heart to be pure wonderment. At times, you'll notice Islam. And you'll think about it. And you'll think about it. And you'll think about it. I remember, let me share a story with you. I was um, going to preach in the United Kingdom. I know, I'm so amazing. all these countries. are <laughs> was it. You know what the worst? Let me, let, me tell you the, let me just pick a bone with you real quick, okay? Let me tell you the worst thing you can do to somebody. If, somebody t- if you want to be a straight thug, hater, if somebody tells you that they're going on a vacation, let's say to Paris, and you recommend them someplace and tell them to have fun, you're a hater. Because what you're really saying is, I've been there before you. Am I right? You post on your story, going to Paris, and somebody goes, try X and X Cafe. You're done. I'm blocking you. You're out. You are out. Okay, why don't you just tell everybody, you've been to Paris before I have. Have fun. By the way, scroll back a few years, and you'll see I was there first. You know what I mean? Like, don't be. Just, like, put the hands that are clapping, like the emoji hands, or, like, the eyes, and just be done with it, Okay. Okay, I'm done. Amen. We'll see you guys tonight. I'm joking. Oh, I got that off my chest. That feels good. That felt good to get it off my chest, yeah. I've been wounded. <laughs> you can tell somebody deeply hurt me. <laughs> what was I even talking about? What was I even... Oh, I was in the UK. I was flying on Delta. Okay, I was flying on Delta. And not first class, all the way back there in the economy where the, the preachers sit, right? And I had a big problem. I was preaching five services, and I had nothing for each—like nothing, like zero. Like, I didn't even have anything. Like n- you ever look at, like you ever look at your notes, right? And you're like, "This isn't the message. Like this isn't the message." And this, I can't even believe I preached that one. I Can't believe people showed up to the service. I can't believe anybody <laughs> gave after I preached that one. And I didn't have anything. And I got there and the pastors picked me up and they paid, you know, for the plane ticket for me. I was feeling really guilty, like, huh. Eh, and they're like, let's go to the show and see G.I. Joe. I'm like, okay, okay. So we're watching G.I. Joe in the movies. I'm like, I have nothing to preach. And I'm like sweating bullets. And, and like, we're getting started the next night and I don't know what I'm gonna do. Oh, problems, problems, problems. So that night I was, man, that night I was laying in my in my, my room. And this is when I had an iPad and, and, and I was just laying there and I was sleeping, I was, I was just sound asleep. And I woke up. Now, I'm a, I'm a nerd. Like, when you guys, we were talking about, what was Jose and Sam, they were telling me how they like to go golfing and they like, they like to work out. I'm like, I like to read books. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like I'm, I, I woke up this morning at 5 a.m. and I'm reading a 700 page uh, novel right now and I was tearing through that at breakfast this morning. Okay, like, and then I'll just keep it going. I like that stuff and, and I think about everything, right? I think about everything. And, and, and I'm sitting there in my hotel room in the presence of God. To this day, to this day, to this day, I've never experienced something that like in my life, I cannot explain it to you. I cannot explain it to you. I just can't. I couldn't walk away from Jesus after that. There's no way I could ever walk away from him. I don't care if you take me to the Olive Garden and tell me it's the best food. I am not deconstructing. (laughs) It's not happening. And I was sitting there, and I'm telling you, I didn't see him. It wasn't like angels. It wasn't one of those weird things that you see on, (laughs) I almost said the website, but I'm not gonna say it. Okay. (laughs) It'll be on the meme page later. It was just heavy. And I felt sinful, but I felt like he loves me. And not that I was sinful. I just am like, I felt like Isaiah. who am I? I'm a man of unclean lips. Like, why are you here? Like, what are you you doing? God, like, I mean, I'm there, and something is taking place, and my rationale kicks in. I grab the iPad. I go, okay, give me the message. This is going to be good. And I felt deeply convicted. It's like in, like, I don't know. It's like we were communicating. I don't know how to explain what was going on, okay? And that, whatever you wanna call it, lasted probably about 25, 30 minutes. And listen, they are better preachers than me. they are better teachers than me. There's, a whole, there's I mean, I am like probably a D-lister or an E-lister maybe, okay, and, and but that, I'm gonna tell you something, I'm gonna tell you something right now. That night, I walked into service without a sermon. I had one sentence. And I got up there. It was a college in London, okay? And I started talking and... It was just like the stuff that was coming... I'm spitting, sorry. The stuff that was coming out of my mouth, people would start crying. They were not jotting notes down. It's like I had been... I don't know what had happened. People got baptized in the Spirit instantly. People got healed instantly. People gave their lives to Jesus. I mean, it just would go on and on and on. My armor bearer came up to me and goes, okay, what did you do between the last time you preached and now? (laughs) I said, well, (laughs) I said, I don't know. (laughs) Now, you better believe that after that, and that lasted the whole five meetings. You better believe that when that meeting was over, I went into the laboratory and tried to concoct what I had done. I retraced every meal that I ate. <laughs> I retraced every place I had spent my... I mean, I retraced all my steps. I couldn't figure it out. I know you're waiting for me to tell you I figured it out. I haven't figured it out still to this day. But I, I have will say this. It's kept me in wonder. God is not gonna let me figure it out. How about this? There are things about your faith God is never gonna let you have a complete answer to. because of that, I think we figure that out in life really quick. I think you figure that out about your faith really quick. And because there are things that you will never figure out, you can do one of several things. You can give your life over to a heart of wonder and worship and awe and amazement. Or you kind of be the middle ground and try to rationalize everything and formulatize everything, and that's not gonna lead you anywhere quick, and you'll probably become quite legalistic about everything and find out that your formulas and your rationale have fallen short, or you can just all out deconstruct. And think about what the Pharisees did. God is right in front of them. They were so right in their own mind, what did they do? They harass Jesus with their questions. The rationale kicks in. Pharisaical behavior is harassing Jesus with questions versus worshiping Jesus with your questions. Put that on the uh, Instagram. Are your questions, we all have questions, brewed from skepticism, born from genuine love and wonder. I wanna to read to you, I'll say this. When you're thinking of wonder, question is, are you permeable? Are you permeable to the work of the Holy Spirit? Permeable means that through your wonder, do you have a heart that allows the goodness of God to seep into your life? Or do you have a heart that is rock? And that is stone, that is not expecting the goodness of God. But what you're trying to do is you're trying to disprove the goodness of God. You're trying to show that the goodness of God is a sham, it is a fallacy. It's not so. I want to read to you. Um, I'm a literature guy, I love reading literature, books, you know, not just the Cliff Notes. And, and seeing things from a Christian point of view. Write this down for a second. Aquinas said this, Thomas Aquinas says this, wonder is the beginning of wisdom as it were, the road to the search of truth. Augustine said this, our Lord wondered in order to show us that we who still need to be affected must wonder. So what our those have gone before us have said. no. there's a book. Uh, it was written in post World War II, well, kind of between World War One and World War II, and it was by a philosopher's name is Albert Camus. I don't know if you guys any good literature, any literature fans in here. I call him Camus because that's how it looks, but it's Albert Camus, and the book is called The Stranger. And it is, I don't, I'm not saying I recommend that you read it because it is written by an atheist. Now, what I like to do, what I've had to do in my thesis is, that I've had to take the question of suffering. And the goodness of god and discuss it from a christian point of view okay in conversation with different schools of philosophical thought and philosophical value one of them being the absurdist position which we won't talk about and that's coming from a guy probably the most popular philosopher right now his name is albert but why is he interested in me because when your children are deconstructing the the atheism that they're interested in is not the dinosaur bones the atheism that young people are interested in today are not like what you see in the science, the, the, the atheist museum or what Richard Dawkins is talking about. They don't think that's cool. What they think is cool is sort of the atheism or the nihilism that you see in shows like BoJack Horseman and Rick and Morty, where you just don't feel anymore. It's sort of a solipsist type view where you just you don't really feel anymore. You're just kind of like just going through life and there's really no meaning to your essence. And the meaning that is only meaningful is the meaning that you come up with. But at the end of the day, that doesn't really have any meaning as well. And so you create your own meaning. What does that mean for you? And this is where postmodernism causes it to take off. And it's a very nihilistic position. Why I like Dostoevsky, he's my favorite author. If you ever want to read something outside the Bible that will challenge you is Dostoevsky because he was a Christian and he is an existentialist, which means that he tries to consider questions of essence, right? And Dostoevsky would take everything that was positional at the time, like nihilism, and he will run it all the way through and he'll make these characters who are dark and sinful and he will show you where that ends up leading. And so you have these sinister characters, and you will see how they end, right? And you'll say, wow, that will be me if I become a nihilist. And the, the characters are these you know, sadistic, and, and you start to like, there's one, I'm, I'm, talk to me afterwards. We'll talk, we'll talk. You know how to talk. So in this book, The Stranger, you have this absurdist, and his name is, his, his name is Meursault, And Mersaw is a guy who has kind of had it with life. Now, why am I telling this to you? Because I'm showing to you how skepticism will give you over and keep giving you over and keep giving you over to you don't feel anymore. And, and the book, is famously opens with this line. Are you ready? He says this, my mom died today, or was it yesterday? I cannot remember. And, and the striking thing in the book is that he's at his own mother's funeral and he's trying to find coffee. And, and the funeral director is confused because he's like, why is he trying to find coffee he's at his mom's funeral, well, who would even have the capacity to drink coffee at their mom's funeral? And then you start to realize that this guy has no feeling, he doesn't care about life because to him death has no meaning and life has no meaning. And what begins to happen is he becomes like someone's axman, someone's henchman. When people start to realize that he doesn't care about consequence and he doesn't care about morality because he's so skeptic of everything to the point that he gets skeptic of moral values People can use him as their use him as their henchman to do their heinous crimes. And so, I'm going to spoiler alert, he kills somebody. And at the very end, he, he's sitting, this skeptic, he's sitting inside of a prison and a priest comes to see him. And this book, I mean, if you're reading it at this point, your heart is pumping quick. If you put the quote up, this is what he says. He's telling the story. And he says, but suddenly he raised his head. He's talking about the priest. He said, the priest raised his head at me and looked straight at me. And he says, why have you refused to see me? He says, I don't, I said that I didn't believe in God. And he wanted to know if I was sure. And I said that I, I didn't see any reason to ask myself that question. It seemed unimportant. Then he leaned back against the wall, hands flat on his thighs, almost as if it wasn't me he was talking to. He, he remarked that sometimes we think that we're sure when in fact that we're not. I didn't say anything. He looked at me and asked, what do you think? I said it was possible. In any case, I may not have been sure about what really did not interest me, but I was absolutely sure about what didn't, and it just so happened that what he was talking about, or God, or the meaning and the purpose of God, didn't interest me at all. Total skepticism about the things of God and total being given over to a heart that lacks any kind of wonder whatsoever. There are two types of people that are given to skepticism. There are some people that deconstruct who they are so acute against the faith that it's apparent that they're the enemy. And I can see why we want to defend against that. But there are some people I would say that might even be a step lower than that where they don't even care to think about anything. They don't care enough about religion, faith, morality, or ethics, or what is just or what is unjust, what is right or wasn't right at all, to even care at all about it, period. Skepticism is a very dangerous game. It is a very sharp knife. And I wonder how many times people don't even realize, even in the church, that they're running with it. That's why God, in our mystery, calls us and says, child, I know you're bitter about that. But skepticism is not the answer. Child, I know you don't have an answer about that. I know you watched them die in the hospital and you, you prayed over them and they were playing faith confessions and they had the books and they had the CDs and, and you want an answer, but, but rationalism is not the answer. Well, what do you suggest, Reverend Palmer? I can say the only thing that I can even remotely begin to suggest to you is that whatever was in that room that night when I was in the UK was all I needed. can't explain it. Don't know what I did to get it. Just kept me in wonder. I've read some dark stuff in the last year and a half. Last four years, I should say. I've read philosophy stuff that's just like well, I can't believe. It. I don't even want any people to see. I have these books. to be a pastoral care minister in inner city, inner city Detroit. I know every hospital like the back of my hand. I've, well, I've sat with people, sat with them when they pulled the plug and they're playing Kenneth Hagen CDs about healing. Their hands lifted up. I've watched that, man. I've been the guy that had, I went, there's times I've walked in the room, the member of the church is in a body bag when I get there. People I knew. I don't have the answer. But I know this. <laughs> that his spirit still keeps me in wonder. I can't walk away from that. I can't. And my prayer and we're going I'm going to lay hands on people. My prayer is that in all your questioning and all your rationalizing and all the things that you you think and that you encounter that that you don't throw on the towel. Chesterton says this. This is very profound. I want you to pay attention. This is my favorite thing G.K. Chesterton has ever said. Now, um, I'm not the Chesterton expert at Thales but I'm going to pretend I am. As long as you wonder, you have health. When you destroy wonder, you create morbidity or dead faith. The sane man has permitted the twilight or not having an answer for everything. He has always had one foot in earth and one foot in fairyland. He has always cared more for truth than for consistency. The dead logician or the rationalist seeks to make everything make sense all the time. Why did they fail? Why did they do this? Why did they do this? Why did they leave? And in doing that, succeeds in making everything a mystery. And every, in other words, life becomes confusing. The man who permits wonder, in other words, having loose ends... And being okay with it allows one thing to be mysterious and everything suddenly becomes clear. I call it living in divine simplicity. Well, I have backed away. See, my critique on the book of Job is Job's friends. Job's friend, I wish I could teach that, Job's friend's biggest problem It's the fact that they came up with fabrications for everything that was happening in Job's life. They they came up with an oversimplified, over-truncated, false narrative with positive intention to try to explain, and in doing so, Job cursed his friend's answers. And and, and this is moving away. It's trying to impose an answer on everything. when, When God is saying, that's not the way of the spirit. The way of the spirit is to back away from that and trust in his presence. And trust in the work of the Godhead. You know what? We, there was a song that, okay, the secret's out. I run a savage meme page, I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> I run a meme page so savage that people don't even think I'm saved sometimes, I'm joking. <laughs> and we make fun of ourselves. I made memes about me on it, okay? Not that I'm popular enough. People are like, who's Chris Palmer? Why is this meme coming? I'm like, dang it, I'm not memeable yet, okay. <laughs> we ripped a song recently. Yeah, we did. It got 4,000 likes, too. <laughs> the song, and here's this, I'm gonna make a confession, though, and, and I haven't told this to Nathan yet, and Nate maybe was really? My, we, we, this, the meme was this. It said, songs the way that they used to be, and it showed, like, oh, hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prie. These songs are, like, hymns, and they're really good, right? And, and then, um, we put it next to the songs today, and all it said was like 400 times, God turned around, 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 God turned around. God turned around, God turned around. But I like that song. I love that song, actually. Leave that song alone. And I made the meme. Let me tell you why I like it. Because there's a line in that says, He is healing someone. He is doing something right now. Why that speaks to me is because it's ambiguous, isn't it? It tells me that somewhere in the world, the Holy Spirit is at work. And even when your day's been bad, God is moving around this world. And just because you've had a bad day and your heart broke, you can't get over that breakup, doesn't mean that God has ceased to be good. Someone, somewhere, has a testimony of the goodness of God. So leave that song alone, okay? If I could have the pianist come quickly. Are you all still with me? So good, bro.
1: What
2: are you trying to say, Chris? point of Acts is to show you that even in the worst, most difficult crises of your life when nothing goes according to plan and your heart feels like it's getting ripped out of your chest because religion may have let you down and people may have let you down and it seems like Christianity may have let you down. Your own rationale has let you down. Jesus is somewhere to be found in that story. Go to Acts chapter 16. we I mean end with this. Acts 16, the Apostle Paul is having a heck of a time. All the guy wants to do is preach the gospel, you know. He runs into all sorts of problems trying to preach the gospel. He gets put in economy class on his way to preach. Gets put up in a Days Inn. Right, it's a $67 honorarium. Poor guy is having a really bad, a really bad travel ministry. Cockroaches in his room, and nobody buys his CD series. I'm joking. Preachers here might laugh at that. <laughs> No, he's stoned and beaten and left for dead in Acts chapter 14. Now, he goes back into the city after that. And then and, then in, and you'll find out ahead in the story that he's going to go to Ephesus and he's going to get in trouble and he's going to stir up a, a whole entire, what seems to be like a revolution. The whole city of Ephesus is going to get mad and throw him out. Let me just say this about Acts. This is a side note. The, the book of Acts, we look at it as Pentecostals and Charismatics it's this whole thing about the Spirit. The book of Acts is actually Luke writing an apologetic for the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul had a horrible reputation. Churches didn't want to have him in because everywhere he goes, it was supposed that Paul started trouble in all the provinces. And churches were feeling in the first century that if we listen to Paul or if Paul comes our way, we associate with Paul, we're going to get in trouble for hanging out with him. And why does Paul's ministry look so much like Jesus's ministry? Because Luke is trying to show you that Paul, it's not his fault, it's the people around him, and he is just serving Christ. So you'll see how Paul is defended by Luke in the narrative. So this part of the story where, where Luke, where Paul has just been beaten. I mean, he has just been stoned. And then he's about to, he's about to be. Um, put in prison, but in between that sandwich, in between that, we have we have Acts chapter 16 verse 1, and Paul is trying to make a decision about where we should go, and it seems really complicated, and and it's really interesting, and I like this chapter because it's like it's talking about the journey. Here's where the journey transitions. It's like the part of the story where we've been, we've had trouble. Challenge, and where we're going, we're about to have trouble and challenge. And Luke, which is which is a, it illustrates the Christian life. Who's a master writer? Inserts this detail. And when they had come to Miza, they attempted to go into Bithynia. But the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Now, this is the only time, the only time, you see this in anything that's written by Luke and any part of the Bible. Who is the Spirit of Jesus, and what is it? In Greek, um, we would call this a genitive, and the way that it functions is with the genitive force, or I would say, with the, the source of the force of origin, meaning that the Spirit of Jesus or Penuma to Yesu would mean that the spirit which comes from Jesus. I'll give you an example. I could say the car of Ali. Does that mean the car that Ali possesses? Or does that mean the car that Ali gives? and of can mean several things and, and this in the greek you can argue it. I'd argue it means the spirit that jesus gives why does he do that right here what he's telling you is that the holy spirit and, and referring to the holy spirit the holy spirit here is called the spirit that comes from jesus Not talking, to, if we're talking about, the, I don't like to divide the Trinity up because they're functionally you they, they can divide them up. That's about it. And, and and But it's really referring to the Holy Spirit, but he's given this name to let you know that, hear oh, me, that when the Holy Spirit works in your life, that's Jesus showing up in your story. Why did he, that happen to me in my room in England? Because for whatever reason, Jesus needed to show up into my story. And there'll be moments in your life where you don't have it figured out. You don't know. You may, you're like, well, maybe deconstruction. No, stop. (laughs) Rationalization. No, no, stop. I'm I'm gonna gonna go to skepticism. I'm gonna be like like Albert Camus and I'm gonna turn to philosophy and, and, and become, I'm gonna watch BoJack. No. There will be a moment in your life just maintain your heart and disposition towards the Lord where Jesus, like he did in Jerusalem, will show up in your story. And then will come through the work of the Spirit in your life. And stand to our feet. I've I've noticed is that sometimes they're big things sometimes they're small things but you'll know you'll know you'll know if you don't give yourself over to skepticism you will know when it's him will I have all the answers nope will I know why suffering happens nope but at least you'll know he's He's a character in your narrative. And he shows up at the right time, at the right place, on time. I need to pray for a few people today. And quite honestly, I don't know what this altar is called. But I sense an anointing here. With every head bowed, every eye closed in prayer. If you're here today, I hear the Lord say, the Spirit, lead me. That your heart, there are hearts at stake in this moment. Your heart's at stake. Your disposition to the things of God is at stake. Not that you're deconstructing or not that you're going to give yourself over to being unaffected, but you need God to work in your heart. I just want to call you up. You're not a bad person. That's you today. With every head bowed, just make your way to the front here. You can go ahead and move your way to the front, If not hold pray for anybody, but I sense there's some people, I just want to lay my hands on you and pray with you. I say, Pastor Palmer, my heart's at stake in this moment. And, and and I just want to let you know he's there. Just make you, you can come right here to the, to the front here and just come up here. Then the people. Pastor Chris, my heart's at stake. Life can be tough, can't it? Make you ask questions you thought you'd never ask. Make you wonder things you never thought you'd wonder. Make you wonder if you're the only one wondering. But like I said before, your your questions, your wonder can they can be poison. and lead to deconstruction, they can be worshiped. I don't have the power to do anything, but what I can do is pray for you and believe God that the anointing of God will come upon your life. We're going to stay in this peaceful flow. You guys can lift your hands as a worship team please. Just lift your hands. Holy Spirit, yes.
0: Hey, thank you again for listening to today's message. If you found today's sermon encouraging, inspiring, would you consider subscribing to this podcast? That way you won't miss the next word that's coming. See you next time.